Well, for a lot of us, Pastor Ray does not need any introduction at all for the ones of us that have been here for years. And uh, I want to say a little history. Way back when we were in a Bible study with Pastor Ray, we were worshiping at another church, decided we were going to come to Morning Hour Chapel. God led us here that day. And the problem was God led Pastor Ray to announce he was leaving that day. <laughs> so we've been here ever since it's because of the people that are here. And we welcome Pastor Ray back to the pulpit this morning. Thank you, Paul. That's a great, uh, great introduction. I like that. It's the people, not the pastor of a church. I hope, you know, that it's, it's uh, this is a real privilege. Uh, I was here 16 and a half years and uh, left in 2006 to go up to Tioga County. And uh, looking out over, I see familiar faces, but I'm excited. I see a lot of faces. I don't recognize you. And that's good. That means there's life and growth in the church, and uh, that's what we we want to see. Do I just push this or? Uh... Oh, I got it. That's right. Thank you. Uh, there we go. Okay. I, I want to. Uh, this verse from Psalm 33:12 is just a verse. I hardly a day goes by I don't think about it. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And uh, just, there's uh, that's coming more out of the text, but uh, I think about this nation, you know, and I'm sure a lot of you are just uh, struggling to uh, appreciate things that you're seeing happening today and just wondering, how can this be? I, I have recently been pondering, you know, the United States, we're not the center of things, we're the ends of the earth. Uh, I don't know if you ever think about that, but from the biblical perspective, the center of the earth is Jerusalem. The center of the world is Jerusalem. And it's where in Jerusalem where Jesus died, it's where Jerusalem, he's commissioned his apostles to go and take the gospel. And you know, it was, uh, Paul tells us that it happened, Jesus came into this world at just the right moment, just the perfect time. And you know, us looking back, we, we recognize that there was uh, transportation and there were roads connecting the world by the Roman Empire and uh, things that weren't there prior to that. But it's interesting to think about from Jerusalem, the gospel spread all up through Europe and uh, it, it went out into Africa, it went down, it went east uh, into the Asian countries. We don't know nearly as much about the history of the spread of the gospel in those directions as we do about coming to North America. And uh, it, when it came to North America, of course, uh, we, we were, oh, I got ahead of myself there. I didn't want to get to that one yet. When it came to North America, here is where uh, it took root. Many came here for mostly people who were coming to North America. Uh, they were looking for prosperity, weren't they? They were looking for goods to trade and buy. But then a group started coming for freedom to get away from persecution that was happening in, in the old world. And uh, this is uh, interesting to see how the gospel got to North America, the ends of the earth, and then it went back. <laughs> it 
Remember, we, we, were part of, we have been part of the spread of the gospel as well as not just the receiving of the gospel. But throughout the history, uh, we've experienced wars and Jesus even said, you know, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, make sure that you're not alarmed for this must happen, but the end is still to come for nations will rise up in arms against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. We, we read that verse and we're thinking about the end times. Well, we've been in the end times, you know this, I'm sure, ever since Jesus went back to heaven. But these end times are characterized by wars and rumors of wars. And it's, uh, I don't think Jesus said that saying that this is a good thing. I think he said it recognizing that this is a world where people are full of greed and selfishness and power, wanting to be in control and wars and rumors of wars. As I think back over history, history is almost a study of wars. What causes them and what happens before them and what happens after them. And today, we're, it's no different, is it? God wrote, had David write in Psalm 33, how blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen to be his special possession, Obviously a reference to Israel. David would have been thinking along those lines. But he says, the Lord watches from heaven. He sees all people. That We get included there, all people. From the place where he lives, he looks carefully at the earth's inhabitants. He is the one who forms every human heart, takes note of all their actions. No king is delivered by his vast army. A warrior is not saved by his great might. Now, I want to look with you at the beginning of the sermon with a story out of American history. And it takes place in the context of colonial America from 1607 to 1763. And uh, during those 156 years over in Europe, Britain and France were constantly at war. There's at least four different wars described that they were part of. And uh, it was in the context of war between Britain and France, ongoing, that Jamestown was founded in 1607. And uh, during that time in 1620, uh, the Pilgrims landed in Plymouth and started the colonies up in Massachusetts. But in one year after Jamestown was found, Quebec was founded in 1608 by the French. So you, you see this, now the conflict moves from Europe over to North America. Uh, that get, continues. Now during this conflict, the, the predominant king in England was King George. There were two King Georges. When it started, it was King George II. And then his grandson took over, who was King George III. And in France, you had Louis XV, whom they call Louis the Beloved. He was there a long time as King of France. And uh, anyhow, in the, in the, here in North America, the colonists referred to this war going on between England and France as King George's War. That was kind of the nickname for it that they thought of it as. Now in the 1700s, North America looked kind of like this in terms of European nations having control of the land. And you can see uh, the blue is Britain up along the East Coast. And, the, and part of the cold lands up in Canada, and then France has the land from 
behind the colonies over to the Mississippi and up, up into Canada. And they had uh, predominantly the French owned Nova Scotia. Uh, and uh, except if, I don't know if you can see it, there's a little tiny dot there on Nova Scotia that the British had. Now, what you need to think about as you look at that, the Brits controlled the Atlantic coast. They had Philadelphia and the Boston Harbor. The French had one harbor they could land at that was theirs, and that was in Nova Scotia, in what they called Lewisburg. And the British decided they wanted that harbor also. So that's what they did. They, in 1745, the Brits moved up, took over Nova Scotia, conquered and took control of, uh, of Lewisburg. Well, any good king isn't gonna just sit back and let that happen. So Louis XIV commissioned one of the largest movements of military in, uh, prior to the Revolutionary War. He sent out a, an armado of, uh, I think it was 73 ships, 800 cannons, 13,000 soldiers on these ships. Said, you're going to the New World and you're gonna take it back, okay? And the mission was to uh, wipe out Boston, conquer all of the English colonies and all the way down to the, uh, the British West Indies. This was an all-out effort by Louis XIV. So on June 22nd, the Armada left. By August 24th, they still had 870 miles to go to get to Nova Scotia. It seems like God wasn't with them, <laughs> is what you can almost look at and, and come to the conclusion. They got uh, right out to the Biscayne Bay off of Spain, and uh, a big wind came up and uh, destroyed a bunch of their ships. And then they got a little further down off of Portugal and a calm hit the water. And these are sailing ships, they didn't have motors. There, there was no wind, they just sat there for days. And then when they went, to, when the calm ended, an incredible hurricane came in and wrecked a number of their ships. Lightning struck one of their ships and exploded the, all the gunpowder they had on. 30, 30 of their uh, people were, were either seriously injured or killed, 30 of the soldiers and, that they had. And then they, they finally did get going, and uh, by that's, that gets you from June 22nd to August 24th. Oh, that's what happened in those two months. And then they've got 870 miles to go across the Atlantic. By September 10th, some of the ships made it up to Halifax into a little harbor. Not all of them, just a couple of them. By September 27th, uh, Admiral D'Anville, who was in charge of the whole fleet, must have been on one of the lead ships, had a stroke and he died. And uh, you can just begin to imagine what this is happening. By October, 44 more ships arrived. And basically the fleet was there by October. So you have June, you have July, August, September, three, over three months till that fleet arrived and uh, you can just imagine, though, what was going on in the minds of the colonists. Okay, information would travel much slower than they didn't have the internet, but ships were going back and forth. Uh, people were aware of what was supposed to be happening, what was going to come. And the colonists are quite worked up about this when they see these ships sitting up in Halifax. 
they're, they're here. What they said is going to happen. 44 ships loaded with and everything. That, that sounds pretty interesting. What I forgot to tell you was also back when they were still off the coast of Spain and Portugal, they were taking uh, a lot of the, the crew came down with typhoid fever and scurvy. And uh, they were not well by the time they finally did arrive. But in October, Governor uh, William Shirley of Massachusetts was aware that the ships were sitting there in Halifax. He was also aware that they were planning to come and wipe out Boston. And he called everybody to a day of prayer and fasting for deliverance, which is interesting. He, he called people to the South Church and one of the pastor, the pastor who was there, I think his name was Prince, stood up and prayed, Lord, send your tempests, send your storms. And the historians write that before he had finished the prayer, the winds had picked up, the storms were blowing, the bells in the tower of the church were, were ringing erratically. Nobody was there uh, pulling on them and making them ring. And uh, this, a tempest, a hurricane came into the harbor and just uh, devastated the, the uh, French ships that were sitting there. Within a short period of time, 40, 40 some of those ships gave up. <laughs> they, they left, they left the harbor. And uh, the songs went out, sing to God, sing praises to his name, exalt the one who rides on the clouds for the Lord is his name, rejoice before him. Now you need to remember, this is 1745, 46. This is, the, this is right in the heart of what we call the First Great Awakening. You, many of you read uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached that in 1741. And revival was breaking out, and this was just like a little, like a, a wind blowing on that revival, and it, it started to spread through the colonies. Got down to Pennsylvania, and Ben Franklin, now if you know much about Ben Franklin, he certainly wrote a lot about the Bible. He wasn't anti-God, but you know, the stories that you read, all, the, um, all of his peers who loved Jesus were trying to get Ben Franklin to make a decision, to, uh, a confirmation, to make a statement of confession to follow Jesus, and he wouldn't do it. As far as we know, he, he went to the grave having never made that confession, even though he made a lot of incredible statements about God in the Bible. But Ben Franklin, uh, he was inspired, to, he wrote this, there is just reason to fear that unless we humble ourselves before the Lord and amend our ways, we may be chastised with yet heavier judgments. Now you have to realize this is in the context of the ongoing war between France and England. Okay, the, this enormous uh, uh, fleet of soldiers that was coming to uh, bring havoc on them was turned away. But the French were still in, on the mainland. The battles were still going. We still had the French and Indian War looming ahead of us. It, uh, there was still threat, excuse me, upon the, upon the lives of the colonists. And Ben Franklin, taking a humble position, uh, does this and he declares uh, a day of prayer. And they go through with that here in Pennsylvania. Now, this is interesting to understand. David Barton with the Wall Builders. Any of you familiar with, with him? Uh, he, he's, a, a, he's alive today. He's a historian. He writes incredible stuff about uh, the history of our nation and has done incredible research. He has observed that in 179 years, from 1633 to 1812, 
remember there's a war in 1812, okay, uh, over 1,400 official government prayer proclamations were made calling for fasting, praying, humbling ourselves, and thanksgiving. 1,400 official, that means the, the leaders, not, the, not just the church, but the people who were in, in positions of political leadership were calling the nation to prayer. Now, it's right about this time, seven in uh, 1760s we're getting into now, that King George uh, of England, he's still king, King George III, they describe him as the king who did what he wanted to do, okay? He's, I'm king, and I will do what I want to do. And from what I've read, even England wasn't a good place to live when King George was king because he didn't care about the common people. Uh, he didn't care about representation in the House of Parliament. And he certainly didn't care about the common people in the colonies and, and what was going on here. So he came up with the idea, I'm gonna raise money. And he, he tried to sell it on the basis of this is to raise money so we can put British military people in the colonies to protect you from further uprisings from France and the Indians and whatever. So in 1764, he had this idea of taxing sugar. Then in 1765, he started what's called the stamp tax. You may remember reading about that somewhat. Then in 1767, he put a tax on glass, paint, and paper. Okay, so you can see the commodities are starting to get taxed here in the colonies. 1765, he also wrote a, a, a little legal paper in which it, the, uh, the British authorities who were here in the United States over the colonies, they, uh, they could arrest anybody, anytime, anywhere on suspicion and they could detain them indefinitely. And you can begin, do you begin to see where some of the uh, Bill of Rights came from, <laughs> uh, uh, that we came. Also, since there were no forts and barracks for the military, troops, he, he wrote that troops could be, uh, take over anybody's home and property. And there were many stories of people with wonderful homes being made to go live in the barn or down in the basement in the attic as the British troops came in and set up their quarters there in their homes, just confiscating them. This gives you a little bit of feel, okay? Just, uh, I'm sure there's a lot more, but a little bit of feel of what the tension of colonial America was like. This is, uh, remember, this is after the Great Awakening that went through with Jonathan Edwards. So there is a, in the midst of this, there's a church. There's a spiritual context, okay? And uh, I, I just want you to realize, uh, historically, we're going through some times right now that feels very oppressive to us. But it's not new. It's not new. Well, all of that led to the Boston Tea Party, December 16, 1773. The Sons of Liberty uh, gathered they, on a ship. They dressed up like Mohawk Indians. And uh, that's significant because the Mohawks, while they tried to be a somewhat neutral tribe in terms of French and the British, they hated the French. Uh, there had been, the French had done some atrocities among them earlier on, and they avoided the French like the plague. When they did help, they would help the British. So uh, I guess there was something all about that in terms of them doing that. But Boston Tea Party happened December 16, 1773 in protest against the taxes. 
By June 1st of 1774, King George III called for a blockade on the Boston Harbor. And this, uh, okay, you've got December to June, six months. Remember, you've got sailing ships. It takes time to cross the ocean, information to get back and forth. But word gets around in the colonies that this blockade is going to happen. Now, Thomas Jefferson, who's down in Virginia, okay, quite a bit further south, he hears about this, and he identifies with Boston and what's going on up there, and he declares a day of fasting, prayer, and humiliation for June 1st, the very day that the blockade is supposed to begin. When he does that, the governor of Virginia, who was a royal governor, that means King George appointed him governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, who was from Scotland, you can see his Scottish uh, uh, attire, he interpreted that day of prayer as a veiled protest against King George. And he dissolved the Virginia House of Burgess, which was the, the government, what representative government there was, that was it, okay? And he dissolved it. So now he's the sole authority in Virginia. Well, the interesting thing about that is that those men, and that they would be, if I could give you all the names, they were names of, of the founding fathers, many of them that we rec recognize, remember George Washington was among them, Thomas Jefferson, uh, a number of others. They, they moved, they kept meeting as legislators, but they moved to another location and they began to lay plans for the first Continental Congress. Now, I, I'm just telling you this, prayer, prayer, our nation was bathed in prayer by the people who were making big decisions and leading this nation. It didn't just happen. It wasn't just that people were upset. Okay, there were things going on. And uh, that was the first Continental Congress that came out of that. Now, from that point on, I'm just going to list a, a, just a, a snapshot of prayer and fasting. April 19th, 1775, Connecticut Governor John Trumbull calls for a day of prayer and fasting. Remember what happened in 76. Okay, we're getting closer to the Declaration of Independence. All right. May, uh, May 11, 1775, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, which would have been the local Congress under John Hancock, called for a day of prayer and fasting. That was just four days before the famous shot that was heard around the world, where the British were marching up. They heard there were guns and ammo up there. They were coming up to take it. And the famous uh, shot that was heard around the world happened on that particular, in the context of that prayer that was going on. June 12th, May, June, the next month, the Continental Congress under John Hancock also, he was the president, called for a day of prayer and fasting. July 5th, 1775, the Georgia Provincial Congress called for a day of prayer and fasting. I want you to see a couple things. You got Connecticut, Massachusetts, you got the Continental Congress, which was meeting in Pennsylvania. You have Georgia. You, there's a sense of we're in this together, okay, uh, coming together. March 6, 1776, now we're in the year when the Declaration of Independence is when it's declared. General George Washington calls the Continental Army in Cambridge to a day of prayer and fasting. Can you imagine? Called all his troops. No fighting, no, no press for war. Take the day in your tents. We're going to prepare. Uh, we're going to pray. We're going to worship. March 16, 1776, again, the Continental Congress passed 
without dissent, a resolution. We need a day of prayer and fasting. Without dissent, <laughs> that, that amazes me. May 15, 1776, General George Washington ordered troops to pray again on May 17th. You know the famous picture of George Washington kneeling and, and with his horse and praying. Uh, he was a man, he was a man, a devout man, a deep man. In fact, when Jefferson called for that day of prayer that I talked about earlier in Virginia uh, regarding the harbor, Washington wrote in his journal about that day, went to the church and prayed all day, <laughs> prayed and fasted. He, he believed in prayer. This leads us up to July 1776 when the Declaration of Independence was adopted. Again, I want you to notice the, the, the declaring, the colonists declaring their independence didn't just happen in a vacuum. There was a context of seeking God and praying and worshiping. We get to November, we're jumping ahead now, okay. 1779, November 11th, Thomas Jefferson, governor of Virginia, proclaimed a public day of thanksgiving and prayer. September 17, 1787, the U.S. Constitution was written and, de and developed. October 3rd of 1789, Congress requested President, Congress, you hear that? Congress requested President Washington to proclaim a day of prayer and thanksgiving to thank God for the opportunity to form our new government. It wasn't, this wasn't a prayer of help us Lord, this was a prayer of thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we have uh, been able to do this. In 1787 at the Constitutional Convention, Benjamin Franklin made this statement. He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Now, we, we don't have all those prayers, but here's Ben Franklin who said we had, he knew, he remembered, they had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Well, what was it, 74 years later, the Civil War broke out after the Constitution, one of the saddest days in American history. Right in the middle of the Civil War, March 30th, 1863, Senate, <laughs> requested President Lincoln to designate April 30th, 1863 as a day of prayer and fasting. Now again, I, I, just, I just want you to see this is, this is our history, okay? We had Congress calling for it, now we have the Senate. <laughs> Can you imagine something like that happening today, all right? I, I just, I, I, I give you this, not that we're going to all pour us or get, I don't want to just stir up anger, I just want to stir up the thought that God can do things, and he has done things. And you know, I, I am just appalled, amazed, I don't want to say appalled, I'm amazed as I, as I listen to uh, different political leaders speak today, that the faith that is there in Washington, D.C., among our congressmen, our senators, and staff, the faith that's, in, that's here in uh, our state capital of many of our, our leaders, they are there. It's just there's an incredible battle going on. You know, I think one of the most important things you and I do is we pray. 
specifically for any of those that you can name by name that you know love Jesus Christ that are there as a testimony trying to be salt and light in the midst of a very difficult political arena. Uh, God still has his people. Now, I just want to read a little bit about, well, I'm going to read probably more than you wish I would, about what Abraham Lincoln wrote because there's so much in what he said. This is Abraham Lincoln's writing of the resolution. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and nations. Wow, a senator recognizes that. He says, and whereas it is a duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and, and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And inasmuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subject to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war which now des 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 desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins in the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved those many, these many years. In peace and prosperity, we have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior intelligence, I think is what's there. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully occurring in the views, uh, concurring in the views of Senate, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship in their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. What an incredible uh, pronouncement, resolution made over this land at a time of desperation. You know, the Civil War was sad. Christians were fighting Christians. Uh, that, you know, some of the, the stories you read about Robert E. Lee, he was a godly, God-fearing man. And uh, the generals of the North and the soldiers of the North, there were preachers, there were pastors on both sides involved in that incredible battle. And you know, they were fighting and killing each other. 64 days after that day of prayer, Gettysburg happened. You know Gettysburg. In one hour, 5,000 died in Pickett's Charge on July 3rd, not that long, not that, we just passed July 3rd. 
There were, they say there were 51,000 casualties. That means 51,000 were either dead, wounded, or missing. They couldn't account for after that incredible battle, those two days. That was the turning point. Now, I, I think all of us are nervous about today. The United States now is in a civil war, more over ideologies than anything else. And you, you all, uh, you're informed people, you're, you're listening. You know, we're living in a day and age where fear of God, what's that? Okay. Uh, we're living in a day and age when leaders don't consider it appropriate to talk about the fear of God. And if you talk about the fear of God, you're considered a, uh, what? Stupid, ignorant. Okay. You and I know better, okay? We do, we, we, we order our, don't we? We order our lives around fearing God. We know he can bring discipline and judgment. We also know he's a God of great mercy and kindness. And we, we cry out for that, don't we? This is a day we're living in the post-creation evolution times. You know, we're living in a time when for a, a lot of our fellow American citizens, they wanna be one nation, but not under God, just one nation one nation under some ideology and everybody's fighting for their ideology to be the one that the rest of us conform to that's that's where peace is going to be okay uh in the in the colonial days you need to understand when they went to churches to pray not everybody agreed with the preacher that was up there leading him in prayer not every person gathered in that assembly agreed with the preacher who would preach a sermon to them that day there were religious differences among the early colonists, maybe not as many as there are today, but they, they existed, but they laid it down because they could come together under a fear of God Almighty and say, we need him, this is way beyond us. Today, our intelligent, educated people are so far away from understanding that basic truth and reality that we're doing more harm than we're doing good. You know, there's, uh, I went to a hearing in Harrisburg oh, a couple years ago when uh, Obama was president and there was the, uh, they had that, uh, they were, the threat was coming that they were going to make all, all uh, restrooms public in schools, uh, non-gender, okay? Anybody was going to be able to go in any kind of a bathroom and we went over and I sat in a hearing room and listened to six senators hearing questions and hearing testimonies from different people. And you were hearing both sides of the story. You were hearing the, the people who wanted, wanted this and the you know, people who were opposed to it. But what struck me was one of the senators, and I can't remember his name, he was clearly Jewish in his background. The name, there's no question in my mind that he had a Jewish background. And he said, what can we do? He said, I hear your concern, I hear your concern. He said, what do we have to look at? And I wanted to stand up and say to him, your book, <laughs> the book that your people gave us is what we have to look at. I restrained myself. I probably would have got kicked out, but that's what I felt uh, anyhow. But I just thought, how, how can anybody who has risen to the place of prominence as a senator of a, of a state say something like it, it, it just boggles my mind. But we're living in this, this state, this kind of world today. On the, on the other side of the coin, uh, we need to recognize that 
you know, God is doing incredible things, okay? King Jesus promised he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. His church is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's us. And he is building our church. You know, like I said, when I walked in here, I'm excited to see faces. I don't know who you are and you don't know who I am. He's building his church. Okay, it doesn't stop just because a pastor changes churches. He's doing it. He's building his church. And he says, the church is the salt. Well, you, you know the characteristics of salt. Salt, you, you put it on, it brings flavor out of things. You put salt on it, it makes you thirsty, doesn't it? You get too much salt. Uh, I won't go into all what they tell us or the health issues about salt, but just the qualities of salt. But one of the, one of the long-term, all through history, salt has been used to preserve. You, you put salt on meat to, to preserve it from spoiling. It's been a, a preservative. Well, you and I, that present, prevents decay of the meat. We're salt. We are here to prevent the decay of our culture and our society. We are to slow it down. We may not prevent it, but we slow it down. And I bet every one of you could give me a story of how in your workplace, in a social setting, because you were there, people backed off a little bit in their wild, careless behavior. I know it's happened to me. Uh, over the years, you know, they uh, with different jobs I've had. They say, "Oh, there's a there's a preacher. We better watch our mouth." You know, uh, maybe they don't know you as a preacher, but if if you've spoken about Jesus in the workplace, they know there's that Bible believer. We better watch our mouths. We provide a restraint in some situations, and I think the very existence of the church in North America right now is restraining the onslaught of Satan and his kingdom just trying to devastate things. If you stop and think about most of what the craziness we're seeing is to shut us up, okay? They gotta shut us up. That's why, you know, if we speak out against same-sex marriage, if we speak out against abortion, we are hate language. <laughs> that's called, that's defined. We're trying to get everybody else to see we're, we're hateful that we would do that. But Jesus, is building his church. We're light, we shine light into the darkness. When the light shines in a dark area, you can see. You know, if you're going to go out at night and do something and uh, there's, there's no light shining anywhere, you want a flashlight so you don't trip over a rock or a stone or step on a creature you don't want to step on. Uh, you want to see what's in front of you. Well, we bring that light. And of course, the other thing about light when it shines is what happens if it's dark and all of a sudden you shine light in, what happens? It hurts your eyes, doesn't it? And I, a lot of that happens too, as we shine. Jesus promised before he went back to heaven in the upper room, he said to the disciples, I will not abandon you as orphans. I'm gonna to come to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Don't let your hearts be distressed or lacking in courage. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have trouble and suffering, but take courage, I have conquered the world. I don't read in the scriptures that Jesus says we are going to conquer the world as his church, that we are going to make the whole world Christian. I don't see that in scripture. I see that he will, one day he's going to come back and rule. But our role is to penetrate the darkness, to penetrate the evil, to preserve the righteousness of God, 
in our lives, to touch people. He came to seek and to save the lost. People are lost and they don't know it. You know, one of the things that you have all come to grips with is you recognize I'm lost. I need a savior. I need someone to rescue me. I cannot change my sin. I can't, I can't make it any different. We recognize that. That's what characterizes us. The world is still thinking they're going to get better. They still think they're, they're going to arrive and get so good that the world's going to be a good place. But we're, now we're in, the, we're in the way, okay? We're, we're hindering that with the message of redemption, with the message of salvation. Jesus has called us to be strong in this. And it will be, it is tough. It is tough. It is discouraging. Jesus said in, in that same chapter where he talked about wars and rumors and wars, he says, in the last days, the increase of evil will be so great that the love of many will grow cold. Have you felt that at times? You just, you get so angry at the evil. And before long, you're not nice to your, your spouse, you're not nice to your children, you're not nice to your parents, you're not nice to people around you, you're just grouchy, you're grumpy. Take that as a warning sign. Jesus said, don't let your love get cold. You and I have to stay passionately in love with Jesus. We have to stay passionately soft and tender that the power of the Holy Spirit can come out of us in love and tenderness, even to the people that make us so angry and upset us so much. Psalm 33, later in that great psalm, David wrote, look, the Lord takes notice of his loyal followers, those who wait for him, to demonstrate his faithfulness. We wait for the Lord. He is our deliverer and shield, for our hearts rejoice in him, for we trust in his holy name. That was before Messiah came. David wrote those words. That's, a, that's an eternal truth that you and I, we, we wait for the Lord. We don't go out there and take things into our own hands. Now, I believe if we do this, if we stay faithful and, and tender in our hearts in love towards Jesus Christ, some of you, he's going to, he's going to give you an, a vision of doing something tangible. You know, maybe, maybe running for a political office. Maybe uh, getting a petition up and walking around with it and getting people to sign it. Uh, who knows? It doesn't mean we don't do anything. Maybe writing something and getting it out in front of people. Uh, I don't know. I'm not advocating that waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord sometimes does imply action for us. But before you go jumping in and saying, I got to do something about this, get on your knees, worship him. That's what we must do first. We must, we must worship him. You know, Cindy and I went up to um, uh, Northern High School when they had the uh, Satanist group there that wanted to have the after school. I think Pastor Joe was there too, if I recall. Uh, I didn't get to talk to him, but uh, there were quite a few pastors who were there. And uh, we went, I didn't say anything, I didn't do anything. I, there for two hours, people were lined up coming up to the microphone. And for two hours, it was, it was Christians. There were maybe five or six who stood up in favor of, uh, of the after-school Satan club being there. 
And the, a number of them, when they spoke, I thought, well, no, that's why we don't want, you, want that group in here, because they, they were just so full of anger and bitterness and ugliness when they stood up and spoke. Most of the Christians who came up to that mic pleaded with the board and, and had a, they, they, it was about Jesus. And I, I was so glad to be there and be part of that. The auditorium, it was their, their uh, whole auditorium. It was, it was full, couldn't get too many more people in. But that was a witness, okay? Uh, God may call you to do things like that. He may even lead you to walk up to a microphone and say something, and that's good. But we want, we want to take notice the Lord, we want to don't lose sight of the fact that God is the faithful God. Psalm 60, I love these verses. This is another Psalm of David, not the same one. This is 68. God, we are consumed with all, trembling before you as your glory streams from your holy place. The God of power shares his mighty strength with Israel and with all his people. God, we give our highest praise to you. May we experience your faithfulness, O oh Lord, for we wait for you. We are with all his people, okay? I, I totally believe the, the scripture is when Israel is the, is the center of God's attention here on earth, but the mystery of the church, we got grafted in with Israel. We are part of his people. However that all works out, uh, it is an incredible opportunity for us. So I just encourage you this morning, watch for the hand of God. These are our days to shine like the lights and the stars.